From Washington, I'm David Schultz, and this is Talking Tax. Paul Munter became the acting chief accountant at the SEC two years ago, and it's been a busy two years. He had to deal with hundreds, literally hundreds of restatements for special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs. His crypto accounting guidance forced companies like Block and Robinhood to book their customers' digital holdings on their balance sheet. He prodded the slow-moving Financial Accounting Standards Board, or FASB, to turn around projects that investors have been demanding for years. And he's been unrelenting about the high bar the commission and investors expect auditors to meet, even challenging auditors' business strategies. In short, he's been one of the most consequential accountants in the SEC's history, and that was just as the temporary fill-in, now the job is his. Munter was named the permanent chief accountant in January. When Bloomberg tax reporter Amanda Icone sat down with him, she wanted to know what we could expect from him next. We also wanted to get his take on the past four weeks of nonstop headlines featuring the big four accounting firms. Not just their role in auditing failed banks, but also EY's messy business divorce. And we should mention here before we get into it that Paul's views are his own and don't represent those of the SEC or its staff. Okay, here's Paul. I think in terms of priorities, they don't really change much. I was actually, somebody was asking me very shortly after the announcement, you know, what, what priorities were. And my response was, well, my views on what we should be doing and where we should be focused uh, didn't really change too much from a couple days before the announcement. So we're focusing on what we can do to support the dissemination of high quality information that's going to be useful for investors so that they can make more informed and therefore more efficient capital allocation decisions, and to the extent that information is subject to audit assurance, that there is high-quality audits around that performed by independent auditors that uh, add to the confidence that investors have in the information. And one of the perhaps uh, the latest complex issue that's arisen has to do with bank accounting. Um, You know, we've seen three banks collapse. Um, A fourth is maybe teetering. It's had a rescue. Um, And there's a host of questions about what went wrong. Did bank regulators do enough? Did bank management not manage their risk properly? But it's also reignited this debate over bank accounting standards and and how banks value their portfolios. And, you know, last year you flagged accounting rules that help preparers in a high inflation environment. But what about interest rate and liquidity risks? Yeah, real real good question, Amanda. And and obviously I can't speak about any individual issuers' uh, accounting and disclosure matters. But we we have, of course, um, a, a lot of rules and guidance in place, both for information in the finance statements and and elsewhere in the in the filing. We have guidance in Regulation SK as well as staff level guidance on disclosures with respect to risk factors that issuers have and um, a, a lot of staff guidance trying to encourage issuers to make sure that their discussion about risk factors uh, is specific to the risks of the issuer and, and doesn't fall into the category of, of boilerplate kind of, of disclosures. Secondly, of course, uh, there's a requirement that uh, issuers provide their management discussion and analysis. And if you 
uh, actually expand that. It's management discussion analysis of operations and liquidity is, is a specific aspect of the MDNA. And in particular, if there are um, aspects of the of the operations or an issuer's liquidity position that have a, a reasonable possibility of being affected in the near term, <clears throat> there is guidance both in SK and, and again in staff level guidance and other commission level guidance about uh, the, the kinds of disclosures that issuers should have there. And then in terms of the, the financial statement requirements, there is uh, specific guidance in the uh, FASB's accounting standards codification, uh, which is labeled going concern, but it actually has disclosures beyond the question of going concern. And, and in particular, there is guidance in there about um, disclosures that issuers should be providing in the financial statements if they uh, have risk of not having sufficient operating cash flow over the next 12 months to meet their current liquidity needs. And even if management has plans in place that alleviate the, the questions about going concern, there's still disclosure requirements applicable to that. What is the liquidity issue? What are management's plans to alleviate it, et cetera? So there are um, a lot of requirements in place, both within the financial statement requirements and outside of financial statements. And then, of course, there are uh, requirements under the PCOB auditing standards, and that's in PCOB auditing standard 2415, for an auditor to consider the issuer's ability to continue as a, as a going concern and to consider the adequacy of the disclosures of the, of the issuer. I think it's also important to note that the PCLB has a standard-setting project on its agenda right now to look at its going concern audit requirements, and their current standard-setting calendar is, has an expectation that they will have a proposal out in summertime. Um, I think it's also worth noting that on the international front, the IAASP, that's the International Auditing and Assurance Standards Board, also has a going concern project on its agenda and likely will have an exposure draft out um, very soon. In the meantime, I mean, what would you tell an auditors? I mean, what is their role here in terms of I mean, you know, investors expect them to serve as a check on management and to kind of be their eyes and ears in the room. And, and so, you know, given the current standards and the current accounting, you know, what, what would you tell auditors? What's the message to them? Uh, I, I think there's two pieces to that, Amanda. I think one is the, the audit opinion applies both to the amounts that are recognized and presented in the financial statements, but it applies equally to the disclosures in the financial statements, uh, that the disclosures are an integral part of the financial statements. And as I mentioned, there are accounting disclosure requirements relative to uh, going concern and, and also uh, significant estimates and uncertainties is, is another disclosure requirement. So the auditor is required to consider the adequacy of the issuer's disclosures in the financial statements as, as part of the uh, audit and, and is captured by the audit opinion. <clears throat> and so it is extremely important that auditors focus not just on 
the appropriateness of recognition and measurement in the finance statements, but also on the adequacy and transparency of disclosures that issuers are providing in the financial statements. Secondly, going back to the observations I made a few moments ago about disclosures of, of risk factors in, in MDNA, while that's not subject to the auditor's opinion, <clears throat> the auditor does have a requirement with respect to the annual financial statements where they're issuing an opinion to do what is called a read and consider of other information in the filing. And, and obviously the auditor um, is very often going to become aware of uh, a lot of matters with respect to the issuer that may or may not be immediately captured in the financial statements. Uh, they're certainly probably understanding the budgetary process and the uh, issuer's budgetary outlook and the like. Uh, they obviously also engage with the audit committee uh, as well. And so as they are performing their read and consider responsibilities, particularly relative to MDNA, they need to consider whether the information included there is both consistent with the information in the financial statements to which the opinion attaches, but also consistent with other information the auditor is aware of through the course of having conducted the audit. That other information could include lots of things beyond just the, the budget, right? I mean, it could include bank examinations. It could include, you know, non-compliance non with laws and other regulations is a great big mm -hmm. <laughs> category of stuff that can come across an auditor's desk. You know, I just wonder how, how those ask, those other rules beyond the going concern and the read and consider, I mean, how, how, do, how does that play in here? Yeah, that's a terrific question, and, and you know, I've written about audit responsibility with respect to fraud um, in, in a few months back. There is guidance in PCOB standards about um, illegal acts by, by the issuer. Um, now, it falls into a couple of categories, but you know, there, there are illegal acts that can have a direct and material effect on the financial statements. There are illegal acts that can have an indirect effect on the financial statements, and uh, how that factors into the risk assessment is a little bit different, but neither, ne nevertheless, understanding uh, potential for illegal acts and, and I don't know if you meant use the term no-clar or not, but, but um, uh, non-compliance with laws and regulations is, is certainly a possible illegal act. And, and we see in the current space today a lot of circumstances where there are at least uh, questions about whether a, a company has failed to comply with, with laws or regulations. Uh, just to jump over to the crypto space for a moment, as you know, we, we have had and have a number of enforcement initiatives in that space where uh, companies or exchanges or the like uh, we have asserted have not registered with us when they should have. Um, so that is potentially failure to comply with laws and regulations. So yeah, auditors need to be uh, thinking broadly about what are the risks, particularly risks that might indicate potential fraud or might indicate potential non-compliance with laws and regulations as part of its risk assessment 
and not only do that assessment, but then build out their uh, audit program and execute the audit procedures in a manner that is responsive to those risks. I think it's also critical that you know that's not a um, a one-time analysis that's done up front and document in the work papers and drive on. The, the audit process is a dynamic process, and as the auditor obtains more information throughout the audit process, uh, they, they may need to revise the, the procedures in light of what they have found and in light of what that tells the auditor about potential risk. And, and I think as we, as we wrote about, and we find circumstances where the auditor may have identified red flags in the course of conducting the audit, but not appropriately uh, responded to those to those red flags. Right now, if a, a company, a publicly traded company, holds crypto or Bitcoin on its balance sheet, it, it has to mark those assets down every time they when they drop, and they can't ever mark them up. Um, there's a, a sort of a similar debate happening with banking, right? I wonder if you can weigh in on that about whether or not the FASB should take another look at the the long-term assets that banks hold on their balance sheet. Now, this is a question that has come up a number of times in accounting standard setting going back literally into the 1980s. So, so it's been around for almost 40 years. Um, and and uh, that debate is, has been hashed out many times. I will say, you know, without prejudging what, what the FASB should do, I will say that there is uh, a high degree of transparency around those investments already. The, the held to maturity securities, um, while they are measured on the balance sheet and income statement at amortized cost, the fair value of those uh, investments is disclosed, and unrealized gains or losses is disclosed, and, and that is information that is tagged um, pursuant to our taxonomy and, and XBRL tagging. It's very easy to uh, lift that information and see what uh, any entity's portfolio looks like and the degree to which fair value differs from the carrying out, whether it's, whether it's above or below. So there is uh, a high degree of transparency around the information today uh, already. So it, it is, uh, there, there's a question about is standard setting necessary in light of the fact that information is readily available to investors, um, and, and I understand that that is a legitimate question, but I, but I uh, do think it's important to note that the information is readily available to investors currently. Well, so let's talk about some information that's not readily available to investors, and that that has to do with climate risks. You know the the. SEC is still working on its final rule as it relates to the financial statement disclosures portion of that proposal. If you've been able to reach any sort of consensus in terms of what that's going to look like, there was a lot of feedback, there's been a lot of meetings about you know whether there should be any financial statement disclosure at all. If there was, what should it look like? And, and I just wonder, you know, what's the way forward for that aspect of this, this major rule package? 
Well, I'm not going to be able to give you much here. As you, as you said, we're still in the, in the process of, of working through it. Um, and, and we got a lot of very useful feedback from stakeholders across the spectrum that uh, we have, have given a lot of thought to. So we are still continuing to think through that. Uh, I, I don't know what the, what the final outcome will be with respect to that any more than I can tell you anything about the, about the timing. Uh, but we, we are still continuing to think through that. I want to talk, turn to uh, another topic that you've talked a lot about, and that's independence. Mm-hmm. You've issued a, a string of statements over the last year or two about the various risks to independence. Right now, one of the big four firms, Ernst & Young, is, is continuing to march towards a breakup, maybe. <laughs> They're having a, a hard time deciding, you know, whether or not the firm should split into two. And, you know, I just wonder, you know, what, you've, what are you telling EY as their leaders are, are moving through this project? I mean, you know, they're eventually going to need some sort of regulatory buy-in. What, what concerns do you have about the nature of that breakup from a regulator's perspective? Um, well, well, let me start by saying I don't know much about the details of what the breakup would look like or where they are in the process or anything like that, so I'm not going to comment on, on any firm in particular. But you, you, you're right. Independence is something that we think a lot about and is something that, that as you say, we have focused on uh, quite a bit over the last couple of years or so. Uh, auditor independence is foundational to the confidence that investors have in the quality of, of financial information, that it is subject to audit by a, a, an independent auditor. I, I will say in terms of audit firms and, you know, should they be multidisciplinary or not is kind of the broad question that you're putting on the table there. I guess the way I would describe it is that I have no views about that. What I do have a view on is that if you're an audit firm, that auditor independence and uh, responsiveness to your ethical responsibilities has to be in the core of a firm's DNA, and that applies not just to the professionals in the audit practice, but it has to be part of the audit firm's culture and DNA throughout the firm, regardless of what service line or what practice an individual is in, uh, that's what I have a view on. And if there are things that a firm is doing either from a service offering perspective or a um, financial structure of the firm perspective or things like that that could jeopardize the firm's ability to be independent of its audit client clients, uh, that worries me. You've talked about private equity in the past. What, what it, talk a little bit more about that. What is your concern about private equity investments in particular, investing in public accounting firms? The issue that can arise when you have private equity investment in an audit firm is uh, issues, I guess I should say. One is, uh, what is the accounting firm? And kind of how far out does it cascade 
as you get investment from private equity into the the accounting firm and and does the private equity in effect become part of the accounting firm and therefore included within the umbrella of the entities and individuals that you need to think about independence with respect to. Secondly is what are the affiliated entities that come along with that because private equity will tend to have uh, a number of portfolio companies, obviously, uh, under its its broader umbrella. And, and as you all know, private equity tends not to be static with respect to its investment portfolio. And, and I think the third thing is um, very oftentimes private equity investment comes in with a with with an objective of a timeline that they have in mind in terms of how long they want to be invested in that. And so where you have a, an initial investment by private equity and, and maybe the audit firm uh, has put processes in, in place that allows it to make a determination as to what all is included within the accounting firm and what all is included within the affiliate tree and the like, uh, what happens when an exit event happens? And, uh, you know, is there a new private equity that comes in or is there some other exit event? And, and how does that affect the analysis? So because private equity investment um, oftentimes result in, in some very dynamic relationships, uh, we're concerned that it does put a lot of stress on the accounting firm's ability to monitor whether it maintains its independence with respect to its audit clients on an ongoing basis. You talked about, you know, the risks to accounting firms if capital were to suddenly exit. And we sort of see the same thing with EY, and I know you don't want to talk about specific firms, but some of the concerns about one of the four, you know, the third largest accounting firm in the world is that the audit practice could be weaker after this, that it won't have the resources or the staff or the liquidity that it needs to keep functioning. And I, and I wonder, you know, what is that something you think about? Like, what would happen if, if instead of the big four, it was the big three? Or, you know, some have said this this breakup fight is an existential threat to the firm. You know, what if we didn't have EY at all? Uh, well, you're asking me to speculate on, on a particular transaction, which I'm not really in a position to do. That being said, uh, we, we absolutely think about, as I said at the outset, we, we think about audit quality. Um, and we're always thinking about things through the lens of audit quality uh, for audit firms to be able to perform their responsibilities at an appropriate level of quality. It does require uh, a, 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 an adequate amount of capital um, so that they can obviously uh, hire and train uh, qualified professionals and so they can invest, whether it's in the need to invest in technology or the need to invest in professionals in, in specialties and the like. And so certainly I think that an audit firm needs to be, I mean, they, they are at the end of the day managing a business. Um, now it is a business with a very important public interest role uh, that is critical to functioning of the of the capital markets. So audit firms need to absolutely be thinking about uh, do they have adequate capital? Are they investing it in in the right places and, and the like? Um, but I certainly uh, am, am not in a position or 
frankly, interested in advising an individual firm what they should or should not be doing with respect to meeting their responsibilities of uh, having appropriate resources, having appropriate investment to allow them to continue to improve audit quality. But at the end of the day, audit quality, being able to be independent of their audit clients is a core responsibility of audit firms who choose to audit issuers. That was Paul Munter, the top accountant at the SEC, speaking with Bloomberg tax reporter Amanda Icone. And that's it for today's podcast. You can find up-to-the-minute news and the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz. Rachel Daigle is our editor. Our executive producer is Josh Block from Washington. I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. Our show is by and about legal and government policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know. But you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show, On the Merits, and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.